This morning I want to introduce to you one of our church members here at College Park North Indy. Al and his family have been here for about two years and um, they serve as one of the leaders of a small group. Alan is a fireman, and over the last um, months or so, he and I have spent some time together talking about sermons. He's part of my sermon application team, so if you heard a really stunning application, it probably was because of Alan. He helped out in that regards. As I've gotten to know Alan, there's a couple things that we have in common. We're both husbands and fathers. We both love Jesus, but there's something that we're really different in. If Alan sees a burning building, he's going to run in. If I see a burning building, I'm going to run away. Now, I would argue that my response is more normal and natural, and Alan's response is abjectly abnormal. In, in fact, it's so abnormal that Alan has had all kinds of training that teaches him how to run into a building, that orients his mind that when he hears an alarm, he knows exactly what to do. And Alan and I were talking about this text this week and his role as a fireman, thinking about the fact of all of the kind of training that he's had to go through, particularly his first year. Half of the entire year was just spent training, and then after that, all kinds of training. And the reason why is because running into a burning building is just not a normal thing to do. And a burning building's an intense situation. And the more intense the situation, the more training you need. Alan was telling me of one scenario that almost got the better of him. In fact, he said he'll never forget this moment. He was a, a young recruit and was um, really amped to fight fires. And had heard all of the training, but was more amped to fight fires than he was to listen to the training, if you know what I mean. A, a, a fire happened in a particular house. They were the first engine on the scene. And so Alan jumped off the truck, hooked up the hose, and before the rest of his crew ran into the burning house to try and fight the fire because he was so excited to fight this fire, ran all the way upstairs, couldn't find the fire, only to realize it was up in the attic. The lieutenant called for an attic ladder, which is a small ladder that gets you up into the attic quickly through that uh, access panel. Well, Alan didn't wait. Instead, he jumped up on a table and began punching the ceiling of this house to create his own hole. I mean, he's pretty good guy to be able to do this, right? Pulled the, 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 uh, the plaster down, everything else, created the hole, then pulled himself up, gear and all, and then pulled his hose up, and then when he got up into the attic, the, this was where the fire was burning, only to begin hearing his oxygen tank alarm go off, because you see, he had expended so much energy in punching a hole in the ceiling and not waiting for the ladder that he burned all of his oxygen. Well, now he's in trouble, because he's in the, in, the, in the middle of an attic that's on fire. He doesn't have enough oxygen, and his team hasn't yet arrived. Fortunately, there were some guys on the roof who began cutting a hole in it, and that roof opened up, and Alan realized his only option at this point was to abandon the opportunity to fight the fire, and instead he crawled out the hole, removed his mask, and sat at the top of this house sucking oxygen while the rest of his team finished fighting the fire for him. And Alan told me, my training matters. It matters so that when I'm in situations like that, that I know what I'm supposed to do, not what I'm inclined to do. You see, the more intense a situation like that, the more important one's training is. And in our text today, Peter is making a shift an intense shift, a shift that involves what it means to be an exile, that as culture becomes more and more intense, what you're gonna find here today is that means that your thinking needs to be even clearer. That understanding what it means to live as an exile is really important when culture begins to shift, when life becomes intense, 
that's when thinking about what it means to have an exile mindset becomes incredibly important. And so today what we're gonna talk about in this text is simply this, when a shift in culture happens, it requires intentional biblical thinking. That as life gets more and more intense, it's gonna require you to think carefully and biblically. I've said this before, the problem with our thinking is that we often don't think about our thinking. And while that's true, I have to tell you that when life gets difficult or intense or pressures come, that's when that reality about your thinking really, really matters. In fact, what I'm gonna argue today is this, that you need to think right thoughts or you'll never believe the right promises. You can't claim promises you don't know exist. You can't believe in things you don't know are real unless you're thinking thoughts that point your heart that direction. Now, if you've joined us for the first time today, we're in the middle of a series on 1 Peter where Peter is trying to help us understand what it means to be in exile. He's writing to Christians in the first century who had professed their faith in Christ and then began to sense that the culture around them was beginning to turn against them in some subtle ways and some not so subtle ways. They may have been experiencing that tension in their families or maybe in the community in which they lived or in their jobs. And what Peter is going to do in our text today is show us that this intensification of the environment around them requires some additional thinking, and for that matter, some thinking about their thinking. Or let me put it this way. Part of the reason why we're studying 1 Peter is because I am more and more convinced that bad thinking and weak theology is going to be increasingly more evident and dangerous as culture shifts. What you believe and how you think is not going to be an optional issue. It probably never was, but now that's gonna become more evident and more clear. And that's why Peter writes to these people, because living as an exile requires a particular way of thinking. So I wanna unpack this text with two things. First, considering God's prior grace, we're gonna look back, and then secondly, what does it mean to set our hope in God's future grace? So imagine we're in the text looking back, and we're looking forward. So here's the first. Consider God's prior grace. The first thing that Peter does, which is what many New Testament writers do, especially Paul, is he anchors present truths in previously talked about spiritual realities. In other words, he wants you to live in light of what these beautiful spiritual truths are. That's why the text begins, verse 10, concerning this salvation. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about everything from verses one to nine things that we've talked about in previous weeks. Things like in verses one and two, how God has a plan for um, the lives of those who are the followers of Jesus, that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Considering the salvation means that there are spiritual blessings, like from verses three through five, that are kept in heaven for those who know the Lord Jesus, so that what Peter wants you to know, no matter what happens to you, you're good. Like they can't, they can't touch your eternal weight of glory. So live like people who are free. And then in verses six to nine, that it's possible to not only live and survive as an exile, but it's actually to 
thrive and to rejoice, which is why two times in verses six through nine, Peter says that we are to rejoice. So he, he sets all of this in this context that this faith that they have, this genuine faith, is more precious than gold. So that's what he means by concerning the salvation. He, he's, orient us to, he's orienting us to look back, and then he says something really interesting. Look at verse 10. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So what he's talking about is this. You have this grace that's been given to you, this grace that was to be yours, and there are these prophets who prophesied about this grace that you have. He then says, they, they searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So what Peter is saying is this. You are living in a a realm where you have now received the grace of God, and this grace was something that the prophets of old, they searched and inquired carefully in the Scriptures, meaning they they read the Bible, they read the Scriptures that they had because they wanted to know, when is this new covenant going to happen? When is the Christ going to come? When is is the Savior of the world actually going to, to, to come on earth? And so they They searched and inquired carefully as well. They even searched the the mind or the spirit. They're trying to figure out what is the person or time that the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So what Peter is saying to them is this. Look, all these Old Testament prophets, along with the power of the Holy Spirit, were looking in the scriptures to figure out when would be the moment when God's grace would come. And Peter's point is this. God's grace came in your lifetime. They're looking from the Old Testament perspective at where you live in now, and you are living in the very season that they long for, even ached for. In effect, what Peter is saying is this. When it comes to God's grace, you are living the dream. You're living the dream. The new covenant has come. Your sins can be washed away. You know who the Savior is. He was born. He died. He was raised. He's ascended into heaven. You are living the dream. Do you ever find yourself in your present circumstances needing to be reminded that about five years ago or more, you were hoping that you would be where you are today? For those of you who have young children, can I just remind you? That, that you dreamed of this moment? When, when, when you're getting up at four in the morning, can I remind you that you dreamed of this moment? When you're cleaning up vomit because your little wee ones have, have puked all over the place, can I remind you that, that you, were, you, were, you were dreaming about this moment, that the fact of the matter is when you get up at four in the morning, get to wipe snotty green noses, clean up vomit, take care of kids, move them all over the place, you are, you're living the dream, man. You're living, this was the dream, was it not? A couple years ago, I was in the middle of running kids' basketball practice all over the place. You know how it is. You feel like your parent Uber is what it is, right? You're just one thing to another. And where do we need to go today? And the kids weren't driving, you know. Just my whole life was consumed with the transportation of my children. And I came in on a Sunday or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And someone said, well, how was your weekend? I was like, oh, my goodness. I went this and that and this and that and this and that. Went to the laundry list, kind of complaining. And this brother said to me, it won't be too long until your quiet house will make you wish for the days that you're in. And I was like, what do you mean, right? So I know, I knew exactly what he meant, right? The fact of the matter is I dreamed of this moment. And so now when our schedule is really busy or we gotta run kids from here or there or you know, when I'm doing something, my schedule's really packed, my response now is living the dream. <laughs> Just living the dream. 
From Peter's perspective, these believers needed to be reminded that they were living the dream. Can I remind you that when it comes to God's grace, you're living the dream. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if if you know that your sins are forgiven, if you know what it means to have a relationship with Christ, if you know what it means to be in the world but not of the world, listen, Peter would say that the the prophets of old, they longed for this day. They looked at it, couldn't wait for the day when God's grace would be revealed, that it would be poured out on all flesh, both Jew and Gentile. And what Peter is in effect saying to them is these exiles are living on the other side of God's historical plan and the Old Testament prophets long for this day. These people now know about his grace they're the recipients of this beautiful grace of God. In effect, they're living the dream. And so I don't know where your heart is today or what sort of burdens or challenge that you, you face or are under or what your last week is like, but maybe you just need to remind your own heart this morning, look, I'm living the dream. <clears throat> I've got a relationship with Christ. My sins are forgiven. Maybe you need to be reminded what verses one to nine say that no matter what happens to you, brother or sister, you're good. Like, you're good. Say what they want, do what they want, and you're good. We're to look back, consider this history of salvation. We're also to look back and consider the work of Jesus. He then says, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, Part of the way that these exiles need to think differently is they need to also consider the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glory. Why would he say that? I think he says that for at least two reasons. First, because he's reminding them that what they have believed in is not just a theological system. It's not just a religion. Like, they've believed in a flesh and blood God-man named Jesus who lived on this earth and who knows what it's like to live in a broken world, who knows exactly what it's like to be in exile. In fact, far worse, John's Gospel says, he came into his own, and his own rejected him. It's not like you. You, you, you come to a world that you're just one of many. He came to the world as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the creator coming to the creature, and the creature says, yeah, not so much. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be maligned. He knows what it's like to be reviled. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. He knows what it's like to be falsely uh, accused and mistreated. He knows all of that. And the writer of Hebrews says, so you can come boldly to the throne because you don't have a high priest who does not understand. Instead, you have a high priest who knows what it's like to be in exile. So you never need to pray this prayer. Jesus, do you know what it's like, what I'm feeling right now? You never need to pray that. Because sufferings were a part of his experience. But additionally, it says sufferings leading to glory and subsequent glory. And here's why Peter says this, because there is a connection between the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would come. And that's the equation within the Bible. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, for to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. The model of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that suffering leads to glory. More than just believing a series of theological truths, more than just ascribing to some particular worldview, what Peter is saying as your Savior went from suffering to glory, 
And for some of you, it may be today that you need to consider that part of the plan of God in your life is that he's going to not bring you around suffering, he's gonna bring you through suffering. And then he talks about the beauty of what has happened to them. So not only the history, not only Jesus, but then it gets really personal. It says this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. How so? He says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. What's he saying here? He's saying, in effect, this gospel has been proclaimed to you, and these prophets, they, they weren't serving themselves. Instead, they were serving you, and they were serving you by the sense that when you heard the good news, when you heard this message, that you're a sinner, Jesus died for your sins, and what happened to Christ, God can apply to your sin account, and by receiving Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins. That's the good news. And if you haven't received that good news, if you haven't made that your own, man, I hope that today you... you cross the line and become a follower of Jesus. And Peter says, if you've received that good news, that moment when you heard that message and something inside your mind and heart went, you know, that's true, and I believe it, that was a miracle. And I don't care if you were 60, 16, six years old. When you understood the beauty of that, what Peter is saying is the Holy Spirit in that moment Open your eyes to behold the beauty of the gospel. It was by no coincidence that that friend came into your life, no coincidence that you were born in the family that you were in, no coincidence that you were in that particular Sunday school class that you were in, no coincidence that you heard a particular message and God by his spirit empowered you to see and in seeing you believed. And what Peter is saying is that moment was supernaturally ordained and supernaturally empowered. In fact, he says it's so unbelievable, it's so amazing that the angels long to look at it. They see how God treats human beings and it blows them away. And I think someday we'll understand why. When we see the beauty of who God is and we understand our own brokenness, I don't think we're ever going to get over in heaven. Why? Why would you set your love on us? Why would you, in your great mercy, extend to us kindness and forgiveness? So what is Peter doing here in verses 10 to 12? Here's, here's what he's doing. He's trying to help exiles remember the amazing grace of God in their lives. Because is it not very easy to lose the awe of what God has done for you as a follower of Jesus. See, here's what happens. The intensity of being in exile, the, the pain, the struggles that you're in, the things that people say about you, the stuff that's happening around you, all the things that are coming at you can quickly make you self-centered. You can quickly become a complainer. You can become easily discouraged. You can become very unspiritual. You can not appreciate the beautiful awe of what God has done for you, and grace can become so familiar that you lose the beauty of it, and Peter aims to elevate the beauty of what's happened to them. A couple weeks ago, I was in um, Holland, Michigan, back where my first church was, and I had lunch with two of my former pastors, and we were at a restaurant that was on um, 
Lake Makatau, which is a bay that opens up into Lake Michigan. And I was sitting there, the warm breeze was blowing, it was a beautiful day, sunny, seagulls were flying around. And I said to one of our pastoral residents who was with me, you know, Luke, I totally took all this for granted when I lived here. I told him, you know, this is so unbelievably beautiful. I didn't know how important and how special this was. Take this the right way. <laughs> Until I moved to Indiana, okay? So I'm just, <laughs> just saying, right? I'm just saying. So it's, it's a wonderful state, love it. I'm, I'm a Hoosier, right? Hoosier, 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 right? So Hoosier, okay? So Brown County, it's good, good, right? Eagle Creek, it's good, right? So, but, but I'm just saying, like in the lead pastor profile that I read when I first considered coming here, there was nothing about very few lakes. There just was not anything in it, in full disclosure. And as I'm sitting there, I told him, you know, I, I took all of this for granted. I, I, I didn't realize how beautiful it was until I, I left. I didn't realize how lovely it was. The, the awe, the beauty just became so familiar, it, it wasn't, it just, I just missed it. And I wonder if some of you are there this morning, that with all the pressures of life, all the challenges that you're dealing with, have you just kind of lost the beauty of what God's grace means to you? Have you forgotten the fact that like all your sins, past, present, and future, they're gone? Have you forgotten about the fact that you're, you're a child of God, you're no longer a slave to fear? Have you forgotten that he's given you a new heart and set you on a destiny that nobody can touch? See, sometimes we, we, we lose the awe, and as a result, we can focus on the things that are, are either negative or, or painful. We can just rehearse all the challenges in life. This summer, we were at a pastor's retreat, and Pastor Dale Shaw was sharing a devotional with our pastors about um, counting our blessings and how to have the peace of Christ. Here's an image of it. It was really a special moment, partly because... It felt like Dale was Jesus in this moment on the Sea of Galilee, but, but, but this was a great moment as he's sharing with us the, about, about the peace of Christ, and what he means is this, is that he was telling us that he and Sarah will often recount all the fruit that they do see in a day instead of lamenting all the fruit that they haven't seen. And I'm telling you, that's been a helpful thing. When I'm discouraged, sometimes Sarah and I will just lay in bed and we'll just talk about, what's all the good things that we saw today? What's all the, the, the wonderful that? Where do we see God at work? And it's remarkable how much we see God at work when we recount where we see him at work. So one of the ways that exiles have the right mindset is by thinking clearly about God's grace in the past. Here's the second thing. Peter then also encourages them to set their hope on future grace. So he's looking back. And now, verse 13, we have a transition. The word therefore is taking the truths of the previous text and now pointing us towards what are the implications of this. And the first imperative, there's three imperatives. There's one in verse 13, there's one in verse 15, there's one in verse 17. We're only gonna look at the first one today. The first imperative is this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. So set your hope fully on on the grace that will be brought to you. So let me unpack that. First of all, what does it mean to set your hope on future grace? Here's what it means. It means that you're in the present life that you're in and you look ahead to the promises of God in his word and you bank your life on those promises, whether those promises are a million years in the future, whether they're 30 years in the future, or whether they're three hours in the future. 
It means that you live your life not only in light of what's happened to you in the past, but also believing that God's promises are true and they're going to be true in the future. So you live your life in light of them. So that means that you go to bed believing, even though you have an anxious, worried heart, that tomorrow morning I'm gonna wake up and there's gonna be fresh mercies available to me. And I believe that because God told me in his word that that's indeed true. That's what it means to live by faith in future grace. It means you read the promises in the Bible, you point your heart and your hope towards those promises as a means of strength and belief and faith. Hebrews 11 links this idea of things hoped for to the category of faith. The writer says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Paul writes to Timothy about how do, how do you endure difficulties when you're in ministry? How do you toil and strive? Here's what he says. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And as well, Paul warns Timothy that one of the dangers of wealth is that your heart cannot be set wholly on God, but your heart could be set partially on God and also partially on your money. Like I believe in God, but my money's gonna take care of me too. First Timothy six, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. So we set our hopes on God's ability to take care of us. So this is as practical as this. Someone says something negative about you, and then you believe, you know what, that, they're gonna say this negative, but I'm gonna rest my hope on what God says about me. You know, work situation that seems a little tenuous, and you wonder, man, what could happen? This, this, this work situation could change. Well, you could place your hope in your employer, or you could place your hope in God, who possesses all resources. And what happens is there's a, a spiritual consideration where you weigh things in the balance. You weigh the circumstances that you're dealing with with the promises of God and his word. So Romans 8 puts it this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Or... The writer of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, consider him. What do you mean consider him? It means look at how he lived. Watch how he lived. See what he did who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here's the deal. Some of you are weary and faint-hearted not because the circumstances in your life are by in and of themselves very difficult, although they may be, but you're weary and faint-hearted because all you're doing is considering the circumstances instead of considering Jesus the author and finisher of your faith. You're weary and downhearted because all you see are the difficulties. You haven't thought, I'm living the dream. What you think is, this is not what I expected. And that's the problem, is that you expected Christianity to look like this, and that wasn't a fully accurate picture. Instead, it looks like this. And now it's time to realign your thinking with the biblical pattern of what it means to really follow Jesus. That's why Peter, I think, says, set your hope fully 1 Peter 2, 23, one of my favorite passages in this book, it says this, when he was reviled, 
He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So this is really practical. When someone reviles you, how do you not revile back? When when someone, when you're suffering, how do you not threaten? And the answer, according to this text, is you do what Jesus did. You continue to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. You say, in effect, someday you're going to make this all right, and so at the end of the day, I'm going to trust in your judgment, not in my ability to get my judgment. Some of you are angry inside because, A, you don't think you're living the dream, because you don't know what the dream really is, and secondly, because truth be told, you want to be in charge. And part of being in exile means you don't get to write the script of your life. And praise God, you didn't write the script of your life because Jesus came in, he took over the script and said, how about you live on this script? So setting our hope on God's future grace means that we consider the promises of God so true and so compelling that they affect how we live right now. It means I hear the promise of God, I weigh out God's promise versus my circumstances, and I set my hope on God's promise. Now how do you do that? How do you practically set your hope on God's future grace? When the text says, set your hope fully on the grace of God, that's the imperative, that's the command, and then there are two participles, preparing your minds for action and be sober-minded. Those are two participles that modify this command. So these participles are the things that relate to setting your hope on future grace. So preparing your minds for actions, literally it means to gird up the loins of your mind. Now that's probably not an idea that you're very familiar with. Gird up your loins. What does that mean? Let me show you an image that will be with you forever, okay? (laughs) Now I really got your interest, right? Here it is, all right? So this is what it means. Probably a letdown now, so here it is. So you got a guy with a a large tunic. He he, he wraps up the clothing around him, ties it up, and then he's, he's ready to go. To gird up the loins of your mind means that you are prepared and you are, you've taken preparations for the purpose of taking action. To gird up the loins of your mind, to prepare your minds for action, means that there is a direct connection, notice this, between what you think about and what you actually do. The emphasis here is on disciplined and careful thinking. The idea is that you would read and think and study something so that when you are confronted with a scenario that's wrong or confronted with a situation that's tempting, instead of setting your hope on the wrong thing, you set your hope on the right thing because you have filled your mind with all the promises of God. So mark this down in your mind. You will never, ever, ever believe the promises of God if you don't know what they are. The reality is that an undisciplined mind, a heart that's filled with all the wrong things, causes you to not believe in the promises that actually are the basis of endurance. 
Friends, we have to make our minds a priority because without thinking the right thoughts, you'll never hope in the right promises. So what are some things that contribute to a spiritually disciplined mind? Here's the first thing. Be careful about putting your mind in neutral and just allowing culture and everything to shape it. There's nothing wrong with setting your mind at neutral for a little bit, but be careful. It's like when you ride a bike. You can open your mouth for a little bit, but if you ride your bike for five miles with your mouth open, you're going to eat bugs. <laughs> Put that down in your Bible, right? So there it is. You're like bugs next to this passage. You'll remember. Listen, a person who simply puts their mind in park and you just scroll through the internet, you just watch whatever's on television, you just roll all over social media, whatever the platform is, you just allow your mind just to be saturated and saturated and saturated and saturated with that, and that amount of time that you're putting in that category is like this, and the amount of time you're focusing on its promises are like this, it will affect what you think about, what promises you believe, where your affections go, and frankly, it will affect your ability to successfully manage this exiled life. There's some of you who are in a panic mode regarding what's happening in your family, in your life, in culture, whatnot, and part of the reason you're in a panic is because you don't know the word well enough to interpret the world around you. I don't say that to chide you, I say that to exhort you. So we're to be filling our minds with biblical truth. When you open your Bible, you're not just reading it because you, you, you have to, you're reading it because your mind needs to be saturated with God's thoughts so that when you go out into the world, you know how to think biblically and correctly. You memorize scripture. And inside your bulletin is our fighter verse, even for this week. Some of you, a step you should take is simply just to try start memorizing a, a, a passage of scripture. Start, turn your radio off in your car and start just trying to recite that passage over and over. Put it on the mirror in your bathroom and as you brush your teeth, memorize that passage. Get the word of God inside of you. Take some sort of step. Read a really good book. We have some phenomenal resources in our resource center. Find the opportunity just to fill your mind with what it is that could point your heart towards biblical truth. Parents, you're pouring God's truth into the hearts of your kids, don't you give up. And don't stop because you think they're not listening. You continue to pour into them the word of God, the word of God, pour into them the, the, the scriptures because it becomes the formative means by which they begin to interpret the world. Prepare your minds for action. And then he says, and be sober-minded. This word sober-minded means to be spiritually alert. Peter uses it in chapter 4 and verse 7 for prayer, to be awake in prayer. He also uses it to be awake in regards to the attacks of the devil. The idea is rather than being intoxicated, where your attention is dulled by the pleasures of the world, flesh and the devil, to instead have a mind that's spiritually alert. If you're a basketball player, think of it as the triple threat position. You have a ball in your hand, you get down and you're ready to either pass, dribble, or shoot. The idea is that your mind is ready, that you leave the house, don't leave the house thinking, well, who knows what's gonna happen today, it's gonna talk to any, you ought to walk out of the house thinking I am going out into the world to be salt and light, and God has given me his word so I can see the world and think correctly, and God's gonna open all kinds of doors of opportunity for me either to suffer or to be a witness, and I'm gonna go in the power and the strength of the gospel, and then walk out your door. Don't be one of these people who walks out the door, well, it's going off to London, just kind of going, it's, it's floating along in life. Don't be one of those kind of people. Instead, be the kind of person who's spiritually alert, 
who's sober-minded, who takes seriously the claims of Christ and the authority of the word, and who realizes the significance of what it means to live as an exile on earth. You know what sober-minded means? Sober-minded means that your heart and mind is directed towards the significance of the truths in the Bible. Let me test this. It means that other things, you, 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 you push those other things out. While I've been talking to you, what have you been thinking about? How you look? I love my scarf today. You know, it's, it's nice. Oh yeah, sermon. I tell you. How they look? Wonder where he got that tie. There's only one in the whole church. Where did that come from, right? Your emails? Some of you, some of you checked emails while I was preaching. Social media status? Finances? Your vacation? A new relationship that's, see all these things, in and of themselves, nothing inherently wrong with them. But instead what happens over time, they begin to crowd out the position that God by his spirit wants to have in our mind and heart. So the question is, what takes up space in your mind and ends up dulling your affection for Christ? Sober-mindedness doesn't happen by accident. Your affections follow your thoughts. So what this text is designed to do is to help believers navigate their culture. It's designed to help them know how to take the word and apply it where they live. It's intended to help you to think about your thinking and for you to realize, I will never believe the right promises if I don't know what they are. And so if you're at a spiritual place right now where you're just kind of in a, kind of a downgrade, can I just remind you that this book contains the beautiful promises of God? You are never gonna make it unless you know what's in here. And I'm so grateful that you came today and listened carefully, but tomorrow morning, you had to open up this book and say, God, I'm here, and I wanna know what your promises are, so let's go. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, oh man, my hope is you'll believe the first promise, which is this, he who has the Son has life. And if you believe in Jesus, the Bible says your sins are gone, you're a new creature, gives you a new heart, and then he puts you in the world in order to live as he lived with this beautiful and wonderful hope that you can be a follower of Jesus as an exile in the world. You see, right thinking followed, follows right actions that then leads to right feelings. And friends, we have to make our thinking a priority because we'll never hope in the right promises if we don't know what they are. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be a people who cling to your promises and grab a hold of them and make them our own? Pray for brothers and sisters today who need to be reminded of promises that they know but somehow haven't fully incorporated into their lives. Pray, Father, that you would bring some measure of perhaps even repentance in 
the life of our church when we individually stray from opening the word and saying, God, help me to have a right mindset. Oh, help us to cling to the promises of your word and make us a people who are hungry and ready to know you, believe in you, and to trust in your promises. And church, before we're dismissed, would you just take a moment? And what is it that you need to talk to the Lord about today? Some of you need to acknowledge, God, I, I don't know your promises well enough. Would you help me? Some of you need to ask the Lord to apply a particular promise into your life in a new way. Just for a few moments, I'm gonna allow a time of silent prayer and you just talk to the Lord about whatever's going on in your soul. Oh, Father, we thank you that your mercy is so unbelievable to us. Make us now a people as we scatter into our city that we would be on mission and fulfill your purpose in our lives. We love you and are so grateful for your promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.